One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. When actress Lisa Jessie Peterson took her acclaimed one-woman show to the Louisiana State Penitentiary, better known as Angola, for the massive former plantation on which it stands, she'd already performed it in 35 other prisons as well as in theaters around the U.S. The authorities at Angola okayed the performance well ahead of time and arranged for it to be live-streamed throughout the facility, which is the nation's largest maximum security site. They gave Peterson permission to bring in her own camera crew. But shortly before start time, filming permission was withdrawn, her cameras barred, and although she went ahead with the program anyway, before she could finish, the guards shut the show down. Why? What happened in that audience of mostly 800 incarcerated men that got the authorities so concerned? Angola Do You Hear Us? Voices from a Plantation Prison is a new MTV documentary from director Sinke Northern and producer Catherine Gund. It tells the story in stock black and white. Clearly, the officials at Angola heard something that hit a nerve, but what? We can't speak for the authorities, but our guests have some ideas. With me is Lisa Jessie Peterson herself, the award-winning playwright and actress, and Norris Henderson, former Angola inmate, who co-founded the Angola Special Civic Project while he was incarcerated, and VOTE, Voice of the Experienced, a group focused on criminal justice reform upon his release. If ever you have wondered what difference a play makes or if context for a performance matters, stay tuned. Let me start with you, Norris. First, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you, and congratulations on this film, both of you. It's an extraordinary document. For those who don't know Angola, or at least don't know it as well as you do, Norris, tell us who's there, more or less, who, where we are talking about, what Angola is like. Uh, Angola is uh, 18,000 acres large. Uh, It's the largest land-based prison in America. Uh, The population at the time we was doing the film, at the time I was there, the population went from 5,000 to 6,000, and the population predominantly people of color. I would venture to say 85% of the population are African-American males uh, given. And uh, the prison is located in central, I mean, if you got a visual of the prison, that boot, what they call it, if you kind of look at where your shoe strings would be actually tied at, uh, that intersection is where Angola sits at. And it's the only prison in this country that actually don't have a fence. The prison is surrounded by three quarters of the prison surrounded by the Mississippi River. And the other uh, fourth of the prison is surrounded by the Tunica Hills. Mm. So there's actually no man-made boundaries uh, to the prison with the exception of the front gate that uh, you can come and go through. But mm. Other than that, the prison is kind of like you would either have to be, I tell people all the time when people used to ask about did people escape? I would say, well, it had to be Johnny Wise Miller, who could swim, or Mark Spitz, who could spin the Mississippi River, or Daniel Boone or David Crockett, who could navigate their way through that rugged terrain. Mm. So this prison actually has no actual man-made boundaries. Why was it so important for you to go there, Lisa? You'd performed in lots of other places. What made Angola special? 20 years ago, when I uh, was starting to write the play, I 
stumbled upon information about the Angola Three, which were um, three incarcerated men who served um, an extreme uh, draconian amount of time in solitary confinement. Um, Albert Woodfox, um, Herman King, um, and oh, help me out, Norris. The, um, Herman um, and Robert. Yeah. Herman and Robert, yes, thank you, thank you. And so that um, piqued my interest uh, about the institution, but the fact that Angola sits on an actual plantation was something that um, horrified me and intrigued me. And the name of the play, Peculiar Patriot, um, harkens to a time when uh, the institution of slavery um, in an antebellum South was referred to as the peculiar institution. So the name of my play is a, um, is, a is a play on the 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 term that mm. um, was used for um, slavery. So I thought, what better um, you know location to bring this play than to an actual plantation that has been repurposed into a prison. We're going to hear a whole lot more about that. Let's check out the clip, a clip, a trailer of um, Angola, Can You Hear Us? Voices from a Plantation Prison. Here's a clip. Because of the significance of the land I was on, it was more than a performance. It felt like a calling. It felt like, like a mission. Angola was a plantation. Just because you see prison with your physical eyes, what do you see beyond that? Start questioning why do we send people to prison and who's actually here? My best friend, she said, you got a story to tell, write that down. And I just put the rage on the page because I've had to do something. Man, we need I've been to 35 prisons across the country, but this I knew was historical. To be on a prison plantation, not just to perform, but to activate. Everybody clung on to every word that she said. I'm telling you, that place erupted. You jump-started our hearts and our minds. Here was some truth that somebody couldn't handle. Everybody knew why it was being shut down. When I walked out on stage, I didn't even give it any thought. It was instinctive. I said, bam. I was in the presence of a whole bunch of sleeping giants. And I said, oh, they awake now. That's a trailer from the film we're discussing that documents the performance in 2020 by our guest, Lisa Jesse Peterson, of her play Peculiar Patriot. It ends with the performance being shut down. Can you, can you describe that moment, Lisa, what happened and how it was for you up there on that stage? Uh, so I was performing my play and I thought everything was going fine. The, the audience was having a great time um, audibly and visually, you know, people were laughing and, um, you know, I was in, the, in my zone as a performer. So I go backstage to get ready for my next scene. And um, there was an officer standing uh, with Norris and Norris informed me that um, there was an emergency and the play had to stop. And I just instinctively knew that, that there was not an emergency. Um, and I was, I was shocked. And so Norris went out in front of the audience and he got on the microphone to inform 
uh, the man that the show had to stop. And I'm backstage, I'm listening to it all. And my mind was racing and I, I didn't know what to say, what to do until I heard all of the noise of the men, you know, who were disgruntled, rightfully so, um, questioning and wanting to know why it was being stopped. And so I just decided to, you know, come out and do a curtain call um, as if the play was officially ended, even though it was prematurely ended. But, you know, as a performer, you always um, end the play with closure, with a curtain call. And to thank the audience for their time um, and participation. And so I went out and my normal curtain call, which is, you know, a, a, you know, respectful bow. I just saw the men and the energy that I felt. and I just threw my fist in the air and that created an uproar. Take the story from your perspective, Norris. What happened in that moment that I guess you were told by the authorities this performance has got to end? Yes, yes. Uh, kind of like in, in, in pretty much the same words. And it was kind of like strange because the rationale was that there was, that Lisa was using vulgarity in the play. And we were, the setting was actually a, a prison chapel. But I was saying to myself, like, we've been here like two hours and so. She's been cussing from the time we got here. So I don't see that being a problem. But I think at the juncture that we were at in this play, it was so much truth being told that I tell people all the time, truth has a way of finding favor or disfavor. And I think in that moment, that truth started to impact uh, this particular officer in some kind of way. Because, you know, and, and after the fact, I find out, after I talked to the warden, that the warden didn't have a problem. It was this particular officer. The moment was kind of like surreal in the sense that trying to explain to the guys what was going on, and they knew as well as I did that there was no necessary emergency. Uh, and they felt that. And so when Lisa came back out, it was like just an uproar, you know, and this was an uproar. They know that they were being kind of like cheated of something, cheated of this. Because the thing about it was, this had been pre-approved months in advance for Lisa to come in. We had sent in the play for them to screen and everything was a go. This was a day that Lisa can come in and entertain the guys. And in that moment, though, mm. it, it was kind of like this transformation. It was almost like you tell a story about how people behave. And then in this moment, you actually saw mm. that truth manifest itself. You know, when we started talking about the prison industrial complex, what you represent, how these folks are making money on the backs of y'all from the telephone, from the commissary, the whole nine yards, you hear people talk about that, but you never see it manifest. So let me bring you into that, Lisa, because that very moment, it didn't happen just any place, as Norris is talking about, the the, the shutdown, the, the guards got that uncomfortable at the precise moment that you were hitting a message that had actually hit a nerve with you back in 1998. And in the documentary, you describe that very same truth-telling as being what kind of set you on your mission. Can you talk about that? There was a, a person that said, pointing to the incarcerated guys you were teaching, they're the new cotton. 
Yes. Um, so when I was um, a teaching artist at Rikers Island uh, back in 1998, it was actually a correctional officer that um, referred to the adolescent boys who were 16, 17, and 18 years old um, detained at Rikers Island. And he told me that I was on a modern day plantation and he pointed to the boys and he said, they're the new crops, they're the new cotton. And I was so shocked because I had never heard this language before. I had never heard this metaphor of prison and um, slavery, um, you, know, you know, being one in the same, um, you know. And so he sent me down, he literally boot, boot kicked me down the rabbit hole and of research. And so I started doing research into the prison industrial complex. And it just took me further and further down into the draconian institution um, that we now refer to as mass incarceration and the, um, the profitability of the industry was, as I said in the film, it was um, heartbreaking and infuriating. And so the more research I did, it just found its way. I incorporated it into the play. And, you know, I, you know I, my, my politics about it are, are very strong. And so the characters that I developed um, one character in particular, um, his name is Pablo, who's a character in the play. He speaks very, very bluntly um, about the, the, the industry as a financial way of, um, you know, incarcerating people for profit and profiting off of human suffering. And just to go back for a second, I mean, you at that moment were an aspiring actress. Your friends were going off to Hollywood. You'd have had performance with the Deaf Poetry Jam. You were, you were headed in a totally different direction. You thought, I did, I did, <laughs> and um, you know the, the the time that I was spending with the incarcerated adolescent boys at Rikers Island um, really ignited something in me, and the the human rights crisis that I was witnessing that was literally in America's front yard. I, I couldn't understand why more artists were not ringing the alarm and screaming about this human rights crisis. Mm. Um, and so, you know, because I'm, you know, I, I love, um, you know, I, I love, I love my culture and I despise injustice in any form, it really ignited an evangelistic kind of passion in me. So fast forward, Norris, how did Peculiar Patriot, Lisa's play, end up coming to Angola? Were you involved in that? Yes, yes. It was, matter of fact, it was my initiation. Uh, I invited uh, Lisa and I are part of an um, organization called Art for Justice, and it's connecting activists with artists. And uh, we had a convening here in New Orleans, and I took a tour of folks to Angola. Uh, and while we were there, I was explaining to the group what, you know, what the inner workings of the institution was. And when I mentioned to Lisa that there was a drama club there, that guys would put on plays and skits and stuff for us, she got excited. She was like, oh, man, I would sure love to come and uh, mm -hmm perform for the guy. I said, well, let's work on that. And uh, you know, it took us about kind of like six months to kind of like get it all squared away. And uh, she was willing to come down, came down, we met with the administration uh, to kind of like figure one if we could do it. There was like, yeah, game. 
And then we even had set where she could come down and rehearse. And so to rehearse in the actual mm -hmm. setting, uh, so she'd be familiar with uh, the environment. And so, yeah, it was upon my initiation about talking about what we did inside the institution. She was like, oh, I would love to do this play here. So well, let's see, can we make it happen? And, and let's give our audience a little bit more on your history. I mean, you had the pull that you had and the relationship you had with that prison from the inside out. How many years were you there for? 27 years, 10 months, and 18 days. What age did you go in? What age did you come out just to make it real for people? I, 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 came, I came out at 49, you know, and I went in as a you know, young adult, just passing my teens, you know, and, uh, you know, spent a while there. But uh, I tell people all the time, prison was a bad experience with good results because I wouldn't be doing the work that I do now had it not been for that negative experience. I would, we wouldn't be having this conversation had I not had that negative experience. So... There's value in those lessons learned while I was there and those relationships that I built while I was there. And it was based upon those relationships that I was able to open the door, not just for Lisa to come in, uh, but for you know hundreds of people to come in. And uh, one of the things I would tell people all the time about visiting that prison is that they get to put a face with a name. Right. I talk about people in the prison, they can come and see that nobody is that bad that you got to sneak up on and feed them. And so when Lisa and the rest of the group saw that, it was like, just go, oh, yeah, we support uh, your effort in going to perform that. And uh, I, I was disappointed that uh, the play didn't go to fruition. And, uh, but like I, I, we talk about it all the time, Lisa and I is like, Everything happens for a reason. Yeah. So I mean, them shutting it down even brings more value to what we were trying to do. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, that moment, and feel free to jump in, Lisa. I'm still so struck by that phrase in your play where you say, you know, same plantation, new job title. Was that a new thought to the people that were in that audience, Norris, or was she just saying it from a stage, something that you from the inside had already been thinking about, aware of, et cetera? Like what made that moment so inflammatory? I think what made the moment, it wasn't so much of the guys, it was how security responded to that. The guys were kind of like all in, like she's saying earlier. Guys were laughing, some guys were crying. Because it was in that moment that, you know, you get in this moment where you kind of like become politicized. Yeah. And in that moment, for those guys who already knew the ugly history of the farm, they was like all in. For the guys, for some guys, this was that wake up moment. It was that moment that people had been telling them about. And it was like, nah, say it ain't so. Mm. But in that moment when she started telling that story, and again, it started reckoning with people. People started reconciling with their own situations. Like, oh, she's talking about me. You know, oh, that was similar to my circumstance. And then the bigger picture of the prison industrial complex, they got it. That is a plantation by every definition of a plantation. You work in the field from sun up to sundown. People used to ask all the time, man, y'all in good shape. Well, we walk 20 miles a day. 
five miles in the morning to work, five miles back. Same thing in the afternoon. So you're putting in 20 miles a day walking. Uh, you can't help but be in condition. But we were picking crops where they had machinery can do the very same thing. And so when you equate that to, wait a minute, we got all this heavy equipment that can be doing this phone work, but you got us doing it. And the thing what I mean about us, folks out of urban communities don't know nothing about farming. And then you're being punished because you're not keeping up. I think one of the harshest things, one of the rude awakenings for me was we were picking cotton. And in that moment, I got this long sack and that has to be filled up before the end of the day. And all I can envision going down that road, picking cotton, it was like no trash, just the cotton. Because if you had trash in your bag, you're going to get punched, you're going to get locked up. And then thinking about, man, this is what my ancestors have been through and reliving that. And for some of us, you know, we kind of like, Learn to swallow it. You know, it didn't taste good, but you learned to swallow it. But that day is almost a woke up that sleeping giant. Mm. And that giant was the day, the day is the day that this is going to stop. You know, we're not going to kind of like color code this or make believe that this is not happening. This is live. This is not memorex. Anything you want to add to that, Lisa? No, I think, um, you know, Norris put it uh, brilliantly. Um, you know, I, what was so interesting was, you know, like he said, there were men who were already politicized. And so what I was saying in my play just reaffirmed what they had probably been trying to tell so many people. They were ringing their own alarm. And so I come along and I reaffirm what they've already been doing. And then the ones who, you know, may have been kind of maybe, is it really, I'm not sure then it, it just ignited um, ignited them to, to let them know, yes, it's true. And then when they shut it down, that further let the audience know, oh, she was saying something that is so true and so real because if she wasn't, why would they shut it down? So yeah, it, just, it, just, it just emphasized what I was saying even more and made what I said have that much more resonance because they shut it down. So well, it, it just confirmed of, that what I was saying was actually true. Well, while we're talking about igniting, you, you say in another part of the film that part of your project is to ignite imagination. Uh, let's play another clip. Check this one out. This is Lisa Jesse Peterson from her play, Peculiar Patriot, the documentary about that performance of that play at Angola Prison in 2020. Check it out. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, if this was your last time to ever say anything, what would be the last thing you would say? What would you tell us? Mm. Harriet Tubman, she was born into slavery. That's all she knew. Right. But she saw something bigger than what she saw with her own physical eyes. Right. So just because you see prison with your physical eyes, what do you see beyond that? Because if she could see freedom when all she saw was plantation and slave life, then we can envision a life in a world without mass incarceration. Sis, 
And I know it's safe to say because I can speak for every individual in here. Because I'm the voice of the youngsters and I'm the voice of the older guys in here. Man, we need help in here. We need help. So in that clip, and I love it, Lisa, you you challenge the notion, in fact, that you can't be what you cannot see. And I've always thought, in fact, generations have been what they could not see. Um, you talk about imagining a world without prisons, a world without incarceration. To what extent have you seen that imagining take off since this performance, either at Angola or elsewhere that you work or in your own life? Oh, that's so, um, that's a tough question. Um, so I've seen uh, restorative justice, which is uh, a form of um, bringing both parties, the injured and the person who did the injuring together um, as a healing modality. I had never seen that before when I first entered into this work. Um, so many, um, you know, uh, re-entry programs, both being one of them, you know, just really giving, um, you know, people who are justice impacted, um, you know, information, um, political infrastructure to, to use their use their power to make change. So I've seen that happen, and it's still unfolding. So it's not like we're there. It's the, the imagine the the um, the manifestation of the imagination. We are in the midst of it. So it's it's a little bit challenging for me to um, articulate what I've seen because I'm. Um, still in the midst of the storm, but I know that it's happening because of those things that I just mentioned. Absolutely. And one of the things that um, I definitely want to, um, you know, give voice to and, and highlight is the fact that, um, for example, Norris and his organization Vote is, has had, it's an organization that has the political mechanisms already in place. They already, um, you know, bought bills to, to fruition, um, and they had candidates who they knew were progressive that could help um, alleviate some of the um, oppressive conditions that um, the people were. So what my play did was to ignite and activate this energy. And Norris and his organization, they were able to harness that energy and, you know, use it in a way that... Um, you know, created political change, but the infrastructure, the mechanism he had worked decades to to and to put in place. Yeah. So when we talk about reimagining, he had been doing, he had laid that groundwork for decades. So let's go so, to you, Norris, on that. We always say, you know, the arc of history tilts towards justice, but it requires a lot of shoving um, by a lot of organizing on the ground. You've been part of it with Vote, the organization you founded in 2004 after your release, but also prior to that, while you were still inside the Angola Special Civic Project. How do those two relate and what developments um, are you most excited about in the area of criminal justice reform? How about both? When I, when I think about both, I just see this, this is the Civic Project on steroids. Uh, when we were inside, we were 
you know, in a hopeless situation. Most of us had life sentences and it was like people were projecting that the prison was going to be the worst prison ride in the history of this country. And we were like, well, we didn't get that memo. And so we made a conscious decision. Do we change our conditions or we change our circumstances? And we focus on changing our circumstances. So we started out working in the prison law library for over 20 years. And uh, we started working on proposing legislation that we got, you know, we got, got a little taste of it. And we made a commitment to ourselves that whoever get out got to keep this thing going. And uh, I wasn't the first person to get out, but I was the first one who was committed to keep this thing going. And I think one of the things, the last question you kind of like asked Lisa yeah. about the impact is we didn't see the impact that it actually had on the guys. But when we were here recently to do a premiere of uh, Angola Till You Hear Us, some of the guys who were actually present in the audience in Angola is actually on the streets. And those guys shared with us their intimacy around what that place was like after we left. And it was like one guy who, when it was live streaming, he was watching it in another location in the prison and how excited everybody was and how disgruntled it became when they shut it down. And it's like with anything else. It was like, if they didn't want us to see it, must was something good for us to see. And so we channeled that. We channeled that into getting elected a progressive prosecutor. We got uh, a new sheriff uh, in uh, our parish, which is our county. And so it-, it The motivated. first Black woman sheriff. First Black woman sheriff in the history of this state. And uh, all of that came because those guys in that moment realized that you actually do have power but that power is collective. How do we collectivize our stories, our suffering? And uh, the story of me becomes the story of us and we turn those stories into action. And so we were able to move in those particular areas to bring about. And because of that change of the new prosecutor uh, who has been revisiting a lot of these old cases uh, over 200 people has been released. Uh, just Friday, a guy was exonerated after 39 years uh, from a misidentification. And so it's because of that rude awakening. I tell people, God put people where they need to be. Lisa needed to be in that prison at that particular time to tell that story. Because again, the greatest truths are told in the form of a joke. And so although they were laughing, it was sinking in. That's a lot of truth in what this sister is saying, you know? And, uh, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful uh, to Lisa for, you know, putting herself out there like that. And uh, I can only imagine what it felt like to have the program shut down. But, uh, and, you know, they're concerned for me. They're concerned for me. Like, are you okay? I say, I'm fine. I am fine. And so, you know, I've made several other forays into the prison, bringing other people in. And like I say, again, people just understood in that moment that this individual, you know, like a few good men, it just couldn't handle the truth. Now, did you just say you were exonerated on Friday? No, another guy was exonerated on Friday because of the work that we have put in with, you know, politically educating people about 
how to get involved and how to get their families engaged in doing this work. And uh, because of that, we have a progressive prosecutor who's looking back at all these old cases. And uh, lo and behold, the Innocence Project brought forward his case where he was completely misidentified. And uh, the state knew it, withheld the evidence. And so, you know, we're grateful that we have this uh, prosecutor's office now that wants to do things the right way. We've seen change happening in this country around so-called criminal justice reform, that reimagining that you're talking about, taking the form of demanding uh, that there be change of the sort that you're just describing. We've seen reenfranchisement measures passed in 2018 in Florida and across the country. We've seen more of that grow and grow. This year in 2022, we saw several states pass ballot initiatives banning exactly the kind of prison unpaid labor, slaver labor, that you were kind of putting your finger on there in Angola. I want to ask both of you if you feel like this is the sort of cutting edge, the, the, the leading edge of where the movement is today, and what makes that intersection between incarceration and capitalism our economy and our communities, um, so potent. Um, has to be said, it didn't happen in Louisiana, though, right? Norris, can you explain why there was an initiative that failed, Amendment well, 7? It didn't, it didn't happen in Louisiana primarily because the folks weren't on the same page. The person who was the sponsor of the bill and the people who asked them to sponsor on the bill wasn't on the same page. It was kind of like playing semantics. Uh, the language that actually got put forth was nothing. It was the very same thing. They wasn't changing anything. And I think at the 11th hour, when the sponsor kind of like understood that, and this is one of the tragedies about getting people to sponsor legislation. They have to be all in. They have to fully understand what this legislation represents. And I think there was a real failure to communicate between those two people. And so in the end, the sponsor was asking everybody, along with myself, to vote no, because it wasn't going to change anything. If anything, it was going to justify Mm -hmm. them doing the very same thing that we've been trying to abolish for the last 200 years. Well, same question to you, Lisa. Do you think this is the cutting edge of the kind of criminal justice reform movement? I I believe we are on that cutting edge. The only thing, and I say this all the time, that because I've experienced this person being on the cutting edge of change. Sometimes you don't benefit from the change you bring about. (laughs) But this is the cutting edge right now because people are becoming more and more well about why these institutions exist. And they're not that, and I tell people, the fence is not to keep people in, the fence is to keep people out. You know, and so it's people like you, Laura, that will give voice to this because your listening audience or your viewing audience, I probably never got the opportunity to speak to some of them or none of them. But this gives us an opportunity to tell the Paul Harvey version of that story. I always say that you, your, your isolation is our isolation too. Um, right. exactly. Le- Lisa, exactly. to you, same question. What makes this intersection so potent and perhaps this moment so potent? Um, because people are ready for something different. People are, I think, at the um, at the tipping point, the breaking point, and you know, with with 
you know, with social media, the people have access to information. And so with information, people are able to galvanize and to put that, um, you know, the, the, the information into action. So we're learning about cases, we're learning about, you know, um, grievances, we're learning about um, the draconian, you know, measures that are happening, not just in people's state, but across the nation. So maybe where I was only, you know, familiar, familiar about what was happening in New York, now I'm hearing about what's happening in Wisconsin and Louisiana and all over, because social media has um, really cracked through and I think leveled the playing field. So we are, I think, at a really um, exciting and, um, and dangerous time um, with this intersection. But I'm hopeful that, you know, they always say, um, you know, there, there's a breakdown before the breakthrough. And I think we're witnessing the breakdown. So I'm applauding the breakdown because I know on the other side is the breakthrough. Well, theater helps us with our, helps us train our, um, I think it's Anna Devere Smith says our empathy muscles. Um, and you do it beautifully in your play, clearly, and in the film, Angola, Can You Hear Us? Cinque and the, and the crew figure out brilliantly how to animate the parts they couldn't film um, and make a film out of exactly what Angola authorities didn't want them all to film. Um, it's a powerful piece, and I'm sure it's going to touch a lot of hearts and, and ignite a lot of action around the country. It's streaming. People can find out more information through our website. Before we close, I'd love both of you to address the question we always ask at the end of our show, which is, what do you think the story will be that the future tells of this moment? Norris. I, I think the story the future would tell of now is that this was a challenging time. And I think the, the, the resiliency or the resistance, I, I take resiliency back. The resistance of the people was that they felt that they can look up, they can get up. And so it kept this thing going. I mean, you know, for to be in a country that was founded through resistance, I think we're in that moment now. And I think if we look at the last election cycle, it was that resistance that we're not going backwards no more. We've kind of like planted our flag and from this day forward, we will look back at the early 20, you know, the 2000s and say, oh, that was some tumultuous times, but we got through it. Mm, we beautiful. Got through it because the story of me became the story of us. We collectivized our stories. Well, that's where art and theater come in, right, Lisa? Absolutely, absolutely. Art activates people's hearts. When you activate people's hearts, then you can get people to um, change their consciousness and their consciousness then turns into action. So I think that um, people will look back at this moment and scratch their heads at the depths, the depths of inhumanity that uh, this country was able to languish in for so long. And as Norris brilliantly stated, the resistance um, and the imagination and the will to create and build something different, to build something that includes empathy and humanity and healing. 
because we're really at a critical point of healing. You don't injure somebody that's wounded. You try to heal them. And so, you know, there's so many wounded people, wounded institutions. And so we're at a critical point of healing. And so through that, it's, it's a lot of pain, a lot of pain, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And so I think that people will look back at this moment and say, wow, why would they continue to hurt, hurt people? And there'll be a lot of people studying that question and we'll probably be like, wow, <laughs> you know, look, look, look at these young folks that have taken the time and have, you know, really created a healing modality for humanity. We had a uh, Sarah Jones, your deaf poetry jam colleague on the show not so long ago. She says, hurt people, hurt people and free people, free people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you all. It's been great having you, Norris, Lisa. I appreciate it. Congratulations on the film. I want to encourage people to check it out. We'll put more information at our website. This has been the Laura Flanders show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.